0: My name is Androsky Spicer, and I'm a solutions architect with AWS. As a matter of fact, I've actually been here uh, for a little over four years at this point, almost five, to be honest. Um, So this morning, what I will do, I will take you on a journey that most customers take. And this journey will actually be framed from looking at the VPC as a single unit of networking for a customer who's just taking on a POC to the point of success of that POC and then being given new requirements for a multi-VPC environment. Now, for for those of you, uh, just a refresher, this is the from one to many, evolving VPC design discussion. And uh, that being said, let's dive into it. So, every year, you know, during the preparation of these slides, which takes months, right, um, I try to actually come up with a theme a theme to actually frame everything um, in. And this year, one thing, I th- one thing actually came. Let's keep, kept on coming up, right? And this thing was AWS is actually providing native tools to solve complex problems. And because of that, I decided that the theme for this year is networking simplified on AWS. But what does this actually mean? So in the past, for example, last year, when we actually launched the Transit Gateway, the Transit Gateway was awesome, right? I mean, it solved interconnectivity um, complexes that, that we had before. It removed the need to actually use things like a Transit VPC or to establish pairing connections um, to achieve that inter-VPC routing. But it lacked fundamental things like you know, integrating with a Direct Connect Gateway, for example. How do I distribute a single Direct Connect connection? Globally. So, this year, those challenges have actually been solved. But not only that, we're providing new functionalities like a way to actually manage your transit gateway network globally. So, this talk will end here with an environment that has thousands of VPCs, many different transit gateway environments, and different one-connectivity links between them. But before I get here, what I'd actually like to do is actually take you on a journey, a journey from the beginning all the way to where most of you are today. And I'd actually like to answer questions like, you know, how do I optimize my site to site VPN connections? Is there any way for me to actually get a more deterministic um, uh, sense of latency between my environment and AWS? How do I achieve uh, inter-region transit gateway pairing? And if I can do that, What are the advantages? How should I actually use it? So let's go on a journey with ABC Company. And as as I said before, ABC Company starts where many customers start. A team within the business is given the challenge to migrate an application that's fundamental to the business's operation. In this case, we're migrating a multi-tier web application. Now, this is a revenue-generating application. But the business must actually get an understanding of AWS. How should we actually be using this? And is it actually viable for us? So this environment is actually made up of two load balancers. One is public facing. One is internal facing. So the requirements that a customer has in the beginning is, hey, I need to actually give my servers IP addresses. I need public IP addresses. I need private IP addresses. We have our own side of block of our public IP addresses. Can we actually bring that to AWS? Also, how do we actually design a VPC in a way that you know, it doesn't inhibit us from growing, right? So we actually want to design a VPC that can satisfy this POC, but also give us the flexibility to expand on um, the, re- the initial requirements that we have today. And lastly, we need internet access. What does that actually look like? So this entire talk, or this entire segment, is going to be framed through the eyes of this journey that this team is actually going to take to achieve this success by migrating this web environment onto AWS. So that being said, let's take a look at the basics. I won't spend a lot of time here because my, my, uh, I fundamentally expect everyone to know what a VPC is. But for those who are actually new, I'll do a quick overview for you. A VPC is simply a logically isolated space within AWS that we basically carve out and give to each customer. This is a private environment, so there's no access to it once you actually build it. You have to actually add points where traffic can actually enter your environment from external um, entities. Now, how should you think about a VPC? Well, the first thing is a VPC lives within a specific region. It has what we call availability zones, and for those who aren't familiar with availability zones, these are either a data center within a specific um, part of a region or clusters of data centers within specific areas of that region. And these are actually isolated um, data centers as well. Now, the VPC is actually agnostic to a specific data center. As a matter of fact, you can distribute your IP space across all the availability zones within a specific region, which gives you the ability to build fault-tolerant applications and highly available um, applications. The first thing you'd realize when you create a VPC is that you must identify an IPv4 space. The CIDA range ranges from a slash 28, which gives you 16 IP addresses, some of which aren't usable, all the way up to a slash 16. A slash 16 is the largest, and that gives you 65,536 IP addresses. Optionally, you can actually add or attach an IPv6 CIDA range to your VPC environment. And these two spaces actually operate independently. The limits on IPv6 does not actually impact the limits on IPv4. So if you look at your route table and the limits on your route table, it carries a different set of limits for each type of IP address space. Now, we recommend going as large as you can. In the past, you weren't able to actually change the size of your VPC. So if you created a slash 16, for example, just a test, and you created a load balancer, you realize that that IP space gets eaten up pretty quickly, because we take IP addresses away from your IP space for your load balancers. So design your environment for scale, go as large as you can, and that prevents you from doing any rework early. Now, if you originally designed a of space that was too small, we've actually launched a capability for you to resize the entire VPC. Resizing doesn't actually mean that you can change the primary CIDR range. It simply means that you can attach additional CIDR ranges to your VPC, making it grow even larger. Initially, the default limit on the number of CIDR ranges you can have is five, but you can actually increase that all the way up to 50 CIDR ranges. So if the CIDR range for your uh, VPC falls within the RFC 1918 space of 10.0, for example, slash 16, you can, add, you can actually add 50 additional slash 16s to your VPC, which begs to ask, right, do I need 50 VPCs or do I need one VPC with 50 side ranges attached to it? And if that's the case, how do I then distribute this to all the accounts that actually need it? We will talk about that. But there are fundamental laws or fundamental rules that governs VPC resizing. The first is the cider range that you choose from your RFC 1918 space dictates which other cider range you can actually add as a secondary CIDR. So if you have a 172.16 16, it simply means that your additional cider ranges must come from the 172 range. The second is your primary sider range cannot change. The primary sider range acts as an anchor or a root to your VPC that cannot be removed, but your secondary side can if there are no resources running inside them. And the last, which should be one of the first things I, I, I spoke about, AWS VPC follows fundamental networking principles. You cannot have overlapping IP address spaces without some NAT infrastructure between those two spaces. So to prevent this level of complexity, we recommend that you, if you're not a part of the network engineering team, and you do not have access to your IP um, database internally, that you consult your network engineering team and ask for IP side ranges. Because one of the things that you realize quickly, after you start putting things in AWS, you're going to need things like DNS services, which means that you have to interact with on-premises to resolve on-premises DNS host names. And if you have an overlapping IP space, we will drop your traffic at the edge. So we will not actually send it across your IPsec tunnels or your Direct Connect. Now, how should you think about subnetting? Well, the first thing is a subnet, unlike a VPC, is not um, availability zone agnostic. You create a subnet in a specific availability zone, and there are two types, public and private. Well, there are two classes, public and private. What actually denotes the type of subnet is the infrastructure that you actually or the next hop to actually get to the internet. So if you look at the public subnet, it has a different requirement intrinsically to actually route traffic to the internet versus the private subnet. We recommend that you distribute your IP space evenly across multiple availability zones. And we recommend that you do not use subnets as isolation boundaries around your applications. Therefore, you should not actually create a subnet per application. Instead, create a subnet for based on, based, based on the egress your applications need to the internet. And if you look at this slide here, you realize that um, the public subnet has a slash 22. Because over time, the need to actually have public IP addresses knotted to your EC2 instances um, elastic network interface is actually going away. And we will talk about what are the best practices for interacting with the internet, what are the best practices for actually installing security appliances in your VPC environment, and what are the best practices for actually centralizing egress for thousands of VPCs. Now, if you looked at the slide before, you see here that I actually had an IP space for Lambda. And that's because most customers actually want to manage their Lambda IP space differently because of the unpredictability of how many invocations actually happen per function. So when you do that, it reduces the impact on your overall overall resources that needs your IPs. For example, if you have multiple autoscaling groups, right, and you know autoscaling is going to happen at a particular time, but you don't know when you're going to get a thousand invocations, for example, of your Lambda functions, then you may want to actually go ahead and have a different IP, uh, subnet range or subnet for your Lambda functions. Now, the thing with this is, in the past, your execution environments for Lambda, when it came up, what actually happened on the back end for a Lambda-specific function is we created elastic network interfaces per invocation, which significantly increased your co start time. So customers complained, right? And given the type of company that we are, we listened to our customers, and we actually decided to solve the problem by leveraging our Hyperplane platform. So today, in specific regions, you can actually, when you create your Lambda function, we create hyperplane elastic network interfaces for you on the creation of that function or if you update it. What that does for you is that when your execution environments for a Lambda actually come up, instead of creating elastic network interfaces, you simply tunnel to an existing interface which reduces your call start time for your functions. Now, there are two things I actually want to mention here. Security groups are still used to govern your Elastic Network, HyperPaint Elastic Network interface, so ensure they're tightly, tightly configured. Secondly, when, we, when you're actually creating your Lambda function, we're, we actually ask you to give us at least one subnet. But in reality, we recommend that you actually provide us with multiple subnets so that we can actually spread your Elastic Network interfaces across multiple s- clusters of data centers. Now I mentioned earlier that IPv6 is an option, right? What I didn't say is that when you decide to actually attach an IPv6 CIDR range, we give you a fixed range, and that range actually is a /56, which gives you 18 sextillion IP addresses. When you decide to, to subnet that space, we further divide it down into slash /64s, and that's also fixed. Today you can't change that. Now. IPv6 addresses that we give you aren't link local type addresses, right? These are globally unique addresses by default, which means that if your IPv6 subnet is attached to um, a route table that has an IPv6 default route to the Internet, then entities online will be able to actually, you know, try to access your um, IPv6 subnet space. Again, your security groups should be tightly configured, and you should think, think through what resources live within your public subnets. Now, if you're wondering, well, I like IPv6. I like the globally unique um, characteristics of it, but I don't necessarily like the idea of somebody online or an application online being able to actually reach it. Right. Now, we will talk through in a minute um, how to actually give your IPv6 space some sort of privacy. But before that... The public subnet entities have a public IP address. The route table for public subnet has the internet gateway as the next hop to get to the internet. Now, the internet gateway is actually what's aware of the public IP address that's been assigned to a particular um, EC2 instance. The instance itself isn't actually aware of it. So the internet gateway is actually what does that intrinsic NAT for you to the internet. So your public subnet should only have resources that you're going to actually attach a public IP address to. And as I said before, um, the reason to do this is quickly decreasing. If you want your IPv6 um, space to actually act as a private um, type of uh, uh, environment, then you simply deploy what we call an egress-only internet gateway, which gives your IPv6 space, the ability to actually access online. But nothing online can actually initiate that initial communication with your EC2 instances. Great. But all my resources actually reside in the private subnet. So how should I think about internet egress? Well, the first thing I'll say is your private subnet doesn't have public IP addresses, right? So you need, just as you do today on premises, some sort of NATing to actually take place. Within AWS, we provide two intrinsic types for you. The first is the NAT instance. And if you're familiar with the NAT instance, you'll realize that this is simply a Linux box with um, configurations for IP masquerading and um, forwarding. However, we recommend using the NAT gateway. And the NAT gateway is a recommendation simply because it's a managed infrastructure that's managed by AWS, and it's highly available in a single availability zone. That being said, the recommendation is to actually have at least two NAT gateways deployed in your environment spread across multiple availability zones. So that if a failure should actually happen on one NAT gateway, you can simply add routes to the available NAT gateway in another availability zone. Now, before I actually move on, it's very important to actually note that you can actually have multiple NAT gateways in a single AZ, right? But always think about the reason for doing this and the cost implications of it. um, Because deploying a NAT, NAT gateway generates costs. The second thing I'll say is you can bring your public IP address space today to AWS. As long as you can actually prove that it's yours and that you own it, you can actually add those IP ranges to your AWS environment and select those IP addresses when you're actually deploying things like your NAT gateway. It's called bring your own IP. I know, pretty fancy, right? Um, So up until this point, right, everything has been pretty standard, hasn't it? Um, You know, the the route table works the way you think it should work, right? You associate your subnets to it. Um, You add routes to the route table. You tell us which next hop infrastructure um, you want for those um, routes, and off you go, right? There hasn't been a way for you to actually decide how to route traffic that's actually coming into your VPC, right? So how do you actually do that? This year at reInvent, we launched ingress routing, And what ingress routing does for you, it fundamentally changes the way you think about traffic coming into your environment and how you can actually isolate that traffic based on different security appliances and a different security profile of your applications. So this year, we actually gave you the capability of associating a virtual gateway and an internet gateway to a route table. What that means is all the traffic coming in from that gateway can actually now go through a path that you specify in that particular route table. So let's say that I have an IDS or IPS um, system, and I actually want all traffic coming in to be analyzed. What I would do within the gateway route table, that's what we call um, a route table with an internet gateway or virtual gateway associated with it, I would actually add a route to the elastic network interface of my security appliance that I want that packet inspection to be done on. And then within the route table for that appliance, I would actually provide all the subnets that um, it needs to know about. Make sense? I think so. So, but what does that actually mean? Can I actually have end to end packet inspection? That is, packet inspection going out and packet inspection coming in? The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, you can get so granular as specifying within the internet gate or the gateway route table different subnets and which security appliance traffic for those subnets that are coming into your environment actually go to. So I can actually have a security appliance that that simply does uh, WAF-type functionality, and I can have a deeper security appliance that does deep packet inspection. But what what does this actually look like visually? Let's take this for example. I have an application server here, right, and I want to actually inspect traffic going out from this application server, and I want to inspect traffic coming in. So for the application server's route table, I specify the default route to the Elastic Network interface of my security appliance. For my security appliance, I specify its default route as my internet gateway. For my internet gateway, I've created a gateway route table. And I've associated my internet gateway with it. And I've said, for all traffic from my VPC that's coming into my environment, go through my security appliance. Now, once that traffic comes back to the gateway route table and it goes to my security appliance, because of that local route, my security appliance will always know how to actually send that traffic to the right source. Now, when, I know you're, you're, you're probably asking at this point. You're probably asking, well, this is great, right? But I have thousands of VPCs. Does that mean that I need to deploy a thousand security appliances?" And the answer is no. There are actually ways to actually centralize this type of um, uh, uh, design, and we will talk about that. Now, another question that you might be asking yourself is, well, my security appliance has to be highly available. Can I put that behind a network load balancer, for, uh, for example, and then specify the elastic network interface of that load balancer inside my route table? And the answer is no. That cannot be done today. Um, if, you, if you do that, Uh, the traffic will actually not be routed to anything. We will actually drop that traffic. Okay. Great. So we have our private IP address space, right? We have our public IP addresses. um, We have security, right? But now we're actually being asked to give our environment and our application access to S3 and DynamoDB. And we're also being asked to push our logs into Kinesis Firehose. Now, these are all public AWS services, right? So, should you then specify routes to get to the internet in order to actually get to S3, DynamoDB, and Kinesis? And the answer is no. A few years ago, we released VPC endpoints. And again, VPC endpoints came from our customers, right? Customers said, hey, we want to keep all our traffic on the AWS network. I mean, it's an AWS service. VPC is provided by AWS. So why can't we actually have that private path? So we listened, and we provided VPC endpoints. And we provided two types. The first type was the gateway endpoint. And the gateway endpoint was actually really created for S3 and DynamoDB. And as the name suggests, these are actual gateways. So if you look at a route table that you specified during creation time, you will see specific routes or well, specific routes, to um, S3 or DynamoDB. The great thing about these endpoints is that the network path between your VPC and these services have been optimized for performance. And it's been optimized to actually work with features that existed before endpoints existed. So if you look at S3, for example, we provide customers with a feature or an API that you can actually call for multi-part uploading, right, that gives you the ability to move large amounts of data into um, S3. Now, what we've done is to optimize a path for 25 gigabits per second network between AWS S3 and your VPCs. Coupled that with things like multi-part upload, you can move significant amount of data from your VPC environments into S3 and vice versa. So the recommendation is to always, always use VPC endpoints to interact with AWS services as long as one exists for that particular service. Now, to actually look at an illustration of this, we have a bucket in S3, and we want to provide our VPC subnets with access to that bucket. The first thing we do is actually create that endpoint. And in creating that endpoint, we specify the VPC that we're creating endpoint for and the route tables that we need to actually give access. So a way of actually isolating which subnets have access to this endpoint is by actually specifying which route table we add during creation time. Because if you don't add a route table here, there is no route to actually get the S3 for those entities that are not a part of the, spe- the, the selected route table. So that's the first point of isolation. The second thing you do when you're creating a VPC endpoint is to specify or configure what we call the VPC endpoint policy. Now, this is really important, right? Because if I've created a VPC, and this VPC, let's say it's for dev, and I have within my account buckets for product production, buckets. That are, hip, that are actually compliant for things like HIPAA, buckets that um, you know, dev should never have access to, then what I can actually do in this VPC endpoint policy is actually specify which bucket this entire VPC actually has access to. Now, after I've done that and these routes actually appear, we provide your VPC endpoint with an ID. And for your bucket policy, you can even get more granular by specifying which VPC endpoint actually has access to this particular bucket. Now, the last thing I'd actually mention here is that we've provided the ability for customers to specify an endpoint ID as um, a destination within your security group outgoing rule. So if your application should only have access to S3 via HTTPS or HTTP, then you can actually specify that in an outgoing rule. And the only thing that you can actually send traffic to or your application can actually interact with outside is S3. Once you've done all of this and it's done right, you will have access to the buckets or bucket that you've intended access for. Perfect. So gateway endpoints are awesome, right? What are interface endpoints then? Interface endpoints are significantly different. And if you're thinking, based on this slide, that an interface endpoint is an elastic network interface that acts as an entry point for traffic meant to AWS services, then you would be right. But Interface endpoints and gateway endpoints are significantly different. It's significant, significantly different in the advantages that it provides, right? And how you can actually configure it and what you can configure it for. So, an interface endpoint is actually powered by Amazon's or AWS Private Link. And Private Link is, is actually uh, uh, enabled by the AWS Hyperplane platform. So, if you're familiar with Hyperplane, based on our discussions last year, you'll realize that Hyperplane powers things like NAT gateway, your ne- network load balancers, for example, and it does help to power private link. So interface endpoints exist for AWS services, and it exists for a wider range of services. You can also create internet interface endpoints for your own services. So if you have environments in one VPC, and you need to actually expose that environment to another VPC, You might be thinking, well, do I basically just add routes in Transit Gateway for it? Or do I just establish a pairing link between both VPCs? And both of those options actually work, right? But a simpler way to actually do it, if this application um, that you have or service that you have supports TCP, is by creating or, or advertising this service as an endpoint service and allowing another account to create an interface endpoint to it. An example of this. If I have databases in one account, right, and I need another account to actually get access, then what I can actually do is to create a proxy fleet, add a network load balancer in front of it, wrap that as an endpoint service, and then whitelist the accounts that need access to my databases. And these accounts simply create interface endpoints that gives it access to my environment. Now, the beauty about interface endpoint is that it doesn't care about IP space, right? So, if both environments have overlapping IP address spaces, it doesn't matter. The interface endpoint will not drop that traffic. An example of this, and uh, here, you know, the requirement for this particular ABC company is that they want to actually push their logs into Kinesis. They've already set up a Kinesis um, pipeline to process their logs from their web server and application servers, and now they need access to this. So, what you do is to simply create your interface endpoints. And when you create your interface endpoints, we provide specific DNS host names for you. If an endpoint is actually created for an AWS service, we actually provide a feature called private DNS that allows you to actually interact with the default DNS host name for that particular service. And what private DNS actually is, private DNS is simply a private hosted zone that AWS creates and associates with your VPC. And when you make requests to uh, the AWS service, it simply resolves to the private IP addresses of the elastic network interfaces that were created when you created your interface endpoint. Now, I actually wanted to touch on a second example because while most customers or some customers may not interact with Kinesis, almost every customer at some point needs shell access to their EC2 instances. And in the past, we would actually recommend, to get shell access, right, you have two options. You can either have a one connection between your VPC and on-premises and connect via private IP addresses, or you can simply have a bastion with a public IP address and use that as a jump point into your environment. But because of VPC endpoints, or interface endpoints to be specific, you can now leverage the sessions manager feature of systems manager if you have an interface endpoint already um, created for Systems Manager. And what this this actually does for you, it allows you to actually create a shell session via a browser within Sessions Manager to an EC2 instance that has a private IP address. So no longer do you actually need um, a bastion host, for example, or to actually have one connectivity between your um, VPC and your AWS environment to get a private session to an EC2 instance inside your VPC. All right, so requirements are actually evolving, right? Um, The more we actually get comfortable with AWS is the more we want to do more things, right? So now we have private access to AWS public services, we have internet access, and we have our servers up and running. We've tested actually accessing our environment, and it works. Now, because of this success, What you find, or what this team is actually finding, is that more teams are coming and saying, hey, I want to interact with this environment. But because your company has a policy that certain things must be done across an IPsec um, connection or done across a point-to-point one connection to another subnet space, what you're actually being asked for is an IPsec site-to-site VPN between your AWS environment, and you're not actually asked to be able to resolve your AWS-specific DNS host names from on-premises. So your private hosted zones that you've created, your, v- your EC2 instances um, DNS host names, must be able to actually resolve from on-premises. How do you actually do that? Well, the first thing you need to do in this particular scenario to actually get your DNS to work is to set up a site-to-site VPN. In AWS, you have multiple options. What is the right approach, though? The first thing we provided to actually give you the ability to create site to site VPNs was the virtual gateway. The virtual gateway is actually dedicated to your account. It's inside your account. It it cannot be shared to another account. And it's attached to a single VPC at a time. Now, the great thing about it is that it can actually act as 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 a one concentrator or a cloud hub of sorts, which means you can actually have multiple IPsec tunnels going to it from multiple different remote offices or multiple different remote data centers. Great. But how does that actually play when you need to actually deploy 100 VPCs? Does that mean, then, that you deploy 100 uh, 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 virtual gateways? And the answer would be yes. So what we did was to create the AWS Transit gateway. And the transit gateway provides fundamentally more functionality for, for your site-to-site VPNs than your virtual gateway does. Not only that, your transit gateway is agnostic to VPCs. It doesn't live within a VPC. It lives within your account. Right? So it's not owned by a single VPC. It lives within your account. And it actually transcends the border of an account. So, Transit Gateway, when created, can be shared to multiple accounts um, if, if you have multiple accounts. And we're going to talk about how you actually do this. Now, one of the other things that Transit Gateway actually provides for you when you establish IPSec tunnels, you have the option to actually enable what we call ECMP. And ECMP allows you to actually load balance across multiple sets of tunnels that you deploy between your AWS environment and your on premises environment. Another difference is you can actually fundamentally create many IPsec tunnels to a single gateway and load balance across those tunnels, which means that you no longer have to actually move large amounts of data across a 1.5 gigabit um, tunnel, for example. the transit gateway allows you to actually establish a side to site VPN. Each tunnel has 1.25, but you can have up to 50 or more tunnels going to the same customer gateway. And what that means for you is that you can move large amounts of data across multiple tunnels all at the same time onto on premises. But I agree, that's great, right? But um, one of the things about side to side VPNs is that you still have the limitation of the internet or the unpredictability that the internet actually provides, which means that you can't always be dependent on the latency between your environment and AWS because of that middleman. Being the internet. So, what we did was actually think about how we can leverage our network, our global backbone that's not congested, not like the internet is, and how can we actually use that to benefit our customers. This year, we've actually decided to use the global accelerators network, right, to actually reduce the legs that your traffic takes from on-premises into AWS. And what this, how this actually works is, if you enable accelerated site-to-site VPN when you're creating your IPSec tunnels or your site-to-site VPN on your transit gateway, then what AWS does is, we, we actually route your traffic that's going from on-premises into AWS to the closest edge location to your customer gateway or to your router. The traffic enters that edge location and then traverses the AWS backbone to get to your um, VPC, significantly reducing the amount of time it takes to actually communicate with AWS from on-premises. Now, this particular feature is provided primarily by um, integration with the Global Accelerator, so I'd recommend um, getting familiar with it. So you have... Layer 3 connectivity between AWS and on-premises, and it works. You're leveraging multiple tunnels, right, and you're load balancing across it, and everybody's happy. Everybody can actually get to your EC2 instances, and everybody's happy. However, you still need to provide DNS resolution for AWS-specific resources. So how do you actually do this? Well, in the past, DNS services for your VPC were primarily provided by what we call, internally, the .2 resolver. And it's given a name, .2, um, or it's given that, that, that code name, specifically because your DNS server for your VPC today, even today, is actually located at two plus the base of your CIDR range for your VPC. So if you check your Linux uh, uh, Etsy, uh, directory for your configuration file or your resolve.conf file, you'll actually see the DNS hostname as your CIDR range.2. The thing with this is the functionality provided or provides still is to resolve your EC2 instances host names and to provide recursive lookup for that traffic going out of your VPC. The problem was, or the limitation, is that your on-premises resolvers couldn't actually interact with this DNS server. So what we did last year was to launch the Route 53 resolver. And what the Route 53 resolver does for you is that it actually simplifies DNS interaction and communication within your AWS environment, but also within your on-premises environment. So, if I actually wanted to resolve um, a hostname within AWS that's specific to your VPC, for example, like your private hosted zones, what I would do within the the role of the resolver was to create an inbound endpoint. And when I create an inbound endpoint, what actually happens on the back end is that AWS allocates two elast- well, an Elastic Network Interface to the subnet that you specify that this resolver should be present in. Because it's an elastic network interface, you're getting a private IP address from your CIDR range that you allocate to your VPC. Now, because you have a layer three connectivity between on-premises and your uh, AWS environment, you can now configure DNS resolvers on-premises to conditionally forward all AWS um, specific uh, uh, domains or VPC specific domains into the roughly the resolver and get an answer, a correct answer. And the reverse is also also true. So if I want to resolve on-premises domains, I can configure an outbound outbound endpoint, create an outbound rule to say, hey, for this domain space, route all of this traffic to my on-premises DNS resolvers for resolution. This is a managed service by AWS. And this happens seamlessly and can be configured in minutes. I mean, if you interact with this service, you realize how simple DNS has actually been made for you and that migrating into AWS is simpler than it was two years ago. This is a graphical representation of it. And I know you guys are still asking the question, right? Can this actually be centralized? And the answer is yes. And we will talk about how you centralize DNS resolution for an environment that has thousands of VPCs. So the first thing you do here is to actually ensure that you have layer three connectivity. The second thing you do is to actually create the resolver endpoints and the resolver rules. Um, once you create your resolver rules, you can actually associate them with VPCs. So if I create an, a, an, uh, a, an inbound endpoint, I can associate an inbound rule with multiple VPCs in the same account and across account. And the same is actually true for outbound rules as well. So if I need all my VPCs to be able to actually resolve on-premises domain names, I can associate that single rule with, with hundreds of VPCs. And we'll talk about how to actually do that. Now, a few things are true, one of which is we recommend using your dot2 resolver for, for your VPC-specific resolutions. So your EC2 instance that exists within your VPC, that needs um, uh, 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 DNS services, your .dot2 resolver should continue doing this. We do not recommend changing your DHCP option set to point to your resolver endpoint for all your DNS functionality within your VPC. Great. We have success, right? We can resolve domain names. We have connectivity to on-premises. Everything works beautifully. What you'll actually realize, or what the team that actually took on this particular adventure realized is that they're becoming basically a center of excellence and knowledge within the business for how to actually interact with AWS environments. Now, what's actually happening is that because of this success, the business is now rethinking their approach to IT, right? And do I need to buy more servers or do I simply need to run everything within AWS? What other advantages does AWS provide us, right? So the scope of um, the exploration increases. And one of the things that actually comes with this increase of scope is the decision to go all in on AWS. And this team is actually you now faced with the challenge or the question of, well, it was great doing this for one VPC, but now we have 30 app teams, and they all need their own accounts and different types of accounts, right? They need their dev accounts, their test accounts. They need their product accounts. How do we achieve isolation for all these accounts? How do we simplify routing between resources for different account types? Well, let's answer all these questions, right? Um, And we're going to do it just like we did before through the eyes of a journey of a customer that actually has 30 app teams. Now, the requirements that you're actually being given here or you're actually being, being asked is, well, we need to give each team or three accounts, dev, prod, tests. Not only that, they all need internet access, access to on-premises, DNS services, right? And they all need to actually interact with AWS services. The devs are saying to you, hey, uh, we don't necessarily care about um, VPCs. We just want IP addresses. Our servers should just simply run when we want them to run. We don't want to be thinking about creating anything at all both our servers, and deploying our applications. So we don't care where that IP space lives, right? How do you actually provide them with that simple request, or how do you satisfy that? Well, first, you give them their accounts. You then realize it's 90 accounts, and they all need access. How do you actually simplify this? You simplify it by taking the first step of creating a central account in which everything lives that you plan to share with all the other accounts that exist. So DNS, your roughly three resolvers, those endpoints should live within a VPC that's considered to be a shared services VPC within your shared services account. Your transit gateway, those should actually be deployed within your shared services account, right? So let's walk through how to actually do this and what makes this possible. This is actually made possible by the AWS Resource Access Manager. The AWS Resource Access Manager allows an an, uh, an entity to actually push AWS services beyond the boundary of the account. So a VPC, when it was created in the past, could only exist within a single account. Nothing outside could actually interact or use the subnets or the IP space that you allocated to your VPC. What the resource access manager does, it allows you to take a single VPC and all the side ranges attached to it and share those subnets out to accounts that need access. To actually interact or use the resource access manager, the first thing you do is actually enable it within your AWS organizations. Once it's enabled, you will realize that you have the ability to share your transit gateways, your subnets, the licenses that actually exist within Licenses Manager, and you can actually share your EC2 capacity reservation as well. Now, there are three things, three things that we're, we're actually going to focus on today that's central to the ability to simplify distributing one single set of resources to multiple VPCs and multiple accounts. And the, the first is the ability to share your VPC subnets, The second is interconnectivity of um, VPCs and access to on-premises through the transit gateway. And the third is the Route 53 resolver and the ability to use the resource access manager to share your inbound and outbound rules. And by extension, giving both your on-premises environment access to all the VPCs and the DNS space that exists for those VPCs um, from a central point. So let's look at your your VPC sharing capabilities. VPC sharing leverages AWS Resource Access Manager to share an entity or your subnets. Now, it's important to actually know that there are two types of um, uh, users in this particular um, environment. The first is what we call a VPC owner. The VPC owner owns the uh, VPC. That's the person who actually creates the subnets The internet gateway, the VPC interface endpoints, the gateway endpoints, the NAT gateways, and all the infrastructure for that particular VPC. The participating account, which is a person who actually uses all of that infrastructure, right, can view the subnets. They can view the security groups that they create. But they can only create EC2 instances containers, Lambda functions that uses that particular IP space. So they can't create subnets in the VPC. They can't create internet gateways. They can't create NAT gateways. They can't create interface endpoints. None of that access is given to them. Now, this actually simplifies life for both the person who owns the VPC and the person actually using the VPC, because the participating account can simply focus on the task that they have, right? The devs can get their machines, they can deploy their applications, they can test it, they can tear it down, and everybody's happy. The VPC owner has, has basically the peace of mind that I don't have to actually create 50 VPCs. I can create one and basically give IP spaces out as I see fit. And VPC sharing coupled with VPC resizing gives you the ability to create very large VPC environments for sharing. Now, Security, security, security. At AWS, we're very security conscious. So when actually interacting with a VPC sharing environment, it's very important that packet segmentation is, is um, taken into consideration. So the security groups that these different teams actually implement should be done to a particular standard, and it's recommended that governance is actually in place to ensure security groups are not loosely configured. So there shouldn't be a rule for your security, any security group that gives everything access to a particular application environment. Security groups is the isolation boundary around an application, not the subnet. So always think of a security group as, as that isolation boundary and not the actual subnet. Security groups operate at the EC2 instance level, which means that it's directly attached to the elastic network interface of your EC2 instances. There are three things that actually happen for VPC sharing. The first is, as I said before, you have to enable resource sharing in your organizations. The second is the VPC owner creates what we call a VPC share or resource share within Amazon Resource Access Manager. And once that is actually created and you've actually specified which entity has access to these subnets, these entities can now actually discover what's actually been shared with them. Now, it's very important to point out that VPC sharing can only happen, or you can only share subnets with VPCs that are part of the same AWS organizations. So you can't share a VPC uh, or or a subnet with with an external account from your organizations. That's just, it just won't happen. So we have VPC sharing, the devs, are actually discovering the subnets shared with them, and they've started to launch applications in these two instances. Now, you're actually being asked to deploy VPCs for prod and tests, and both prod and tests needs to actually interact within the confines of their own account type, which means we have test applications that need to talk, even though they exist in different accounts, and we have prod environments and prod resources that need to interact, even though different account teams own the, the accounts. So how do we actually do that? We do that specifically through the Transit Gateway, and the Transit Gateway was actually created to act as a layer three hub that allows you to actually associate your VPCs, regardless of which account they exist in, your site-to-site VPNs, and your Direct Connect connections with the Transit Gateway. and then create routes within the transit gateway for the different entities that exist within it. And we will look at what routing looks like and different types of routing that can actually happen. But a quick overview of how transit gateway actually works. So when you create a transit gateway and you've actually shared it or you create a resource share for it and you've specified the organizational unit or the account that gets access and you've then associated a VPC, what AWS actually does for you is to create an elastic network interface in the subnet you specified during the association time. That single subnet gives a Transit Gateway access to an entire availability zone. If there isn't an elastic network interface in an availability zone for Transit Gateway, Transit Gateway will not be able to communicate with that availability zone and the resources in it. This year, we launched the ability to associate a Transit Gateway pairing attachment which gives you the ability to route traffic between multiple transit gateways across multiple AWS regions. And this particular feature will actually help you to overcome specific limitations that exist on specific infrastructures like Direct Connect um, gateway, for example, and we're gonna talk about it in like five minutes. But first, let's look at routing, because this is very important. When you create a transit gateway, we give you the ability to actually enable what we call propagation or route propagation. If this is actually enabled, we create a single default route table that all attachments, your IPsec side to site VPNs, your direct connect gateway, and your VPCs are all attached to this single route table. Once there's a route within your VPC route tables to your transit gateway, the, the transit gateway route table will allow all your VPCs to interact with each other outside the box. You don't need to add any route to this specific route table for these entities, because the route is propagated into the default route table, and you'll see them appear here, as it does here. You can, however, add static routes to a Transit Gateway route table. And we will talk about scenarios in a minute of when that is actually needed. But this right here is a centralized environment. So if you look at this uh, slide closely, you'll see prod and test VPCs. But the requirement is that prod VPCs should talk, but tests should never be able to actually reach prod. And if we added dev here, dev should never be able to reach test or prod resources. Right? So how do we actually achieve this isolation? We achieve this isolation by actually configuring the transit gateway to act as multiple virtual routing and forwarding tables. So if you're familiar with configuring VRF today and VRF leaking, for example, route leaking, you have that same functionality here. So let's talk about VERF or virtual routing and forwarding tables. You can actually create specific route tables for prod, and you can create specific route tables for tests. And you can basically say, well, I'm going to associate my prod VPC attachments to my prod route table, and I'm going to associate my test VPC attachments to my test route table. And AWS Transit Gateway propagate those routes appropriately to the appropriate route tables, blocking any route, any um, of these um, different environments who should not talk from actually talking with each other. But you might be asking yourself the question, what if I have a side-to-side VPN? Then how is this actually brought into the mix? And it's brought into the mix by actually having another route table, four-year-one connectivity, right, and then statically configuring your prod and test route table if they need access to on- on-premises. Um, with routes to your site-to-site VPN as a next-hop infrastructure to get to your on-premises network. In that particular scenario, prod still cannot talk to test, test still cannot talk to prod, but they can actually both reach your on-premises resources. Great. So we have transit gateway up and running. We've associated our VPCs with transit gateway. We've established one connectivity between on-premises and the different resources by configuring a route table and by configuring the site-to-site VPN. Hopefully, you guys take a recommendation and you've actually configured new accelerated site-to-site VPNs to get the benefits of, of um, the global accelerator network, right? Um, before I actually move on, I need to actually mention one thing. You cannot enable accelerated VPN or accelerated site-to-site VPN on existing IPsec VPN configurations. It can only be enabled for new um, side-to-side VPNs that you guys create, because it's enabled at creation time. Great. So now, everybody's asking for internet access. The private subnet subnet needs to actually reach outside. And the security team is saying to you, hey, uh, so we don't want to route AWS traffic through our internal network, right? We want to actually keep AWS traffic on AWS. So how do we actually do that? Well, first, we're going to talk about how you can achieve centralized egress through multiple NAT gateways within a shared VPC environment. So given that you have your shared services account, given that you have your shared VPC or your shared services VPC, right? we're now going to configure egress to it. We already have our transit gateway. Or transit gateway already has elastic network interfaces in all the availability zones where your private subnets live. So what's left for us to do is to create multiple NAT gateways spread across multiple availability zones. Now, the beauty about this is that it's simple. And AWS has actually allowed the NAT gateways to seamlessly interact with the ENIs or Elastic Network interfaces for your transit gateway. So to achieve Centralized, NAT, you simply create NAT gateways, and you configure default routes for your private subnet to your NAT gateways. The next hop for um, your, your, your transit gateway route table should have the shared services VPC as a default route for internet traffic. So once all of that is configured, all your VPCs, as long as they have access to the transit gateway, can now egress through a central point for internet access. Visually, this is what it looks like. So you create a transit gateway. We create an elastic network interface in the subnet you assign um, during association time between your VPC and the transit gateway. Um, This ENI gives the transit gateway access to that, that entire availability zone. And within the route table for this particular subnet, private subnet, you have a default route to the the NAT gateway. So all requests coming from the transit gateway goes through this ENI and then through the NAT gateway. The NAT gateway, as it does today, interacts with the internet gateway to send that traffic out. The internet gateway, however, when it's returning that traffic, it does not send the traffic back through the NAT gateway. So therefore, if you want the internet gateway to actually know where to send that traffic, the public route table that the internet gateway is attached to should have routes for the different CIDR ranges that need egress to the internet. Um, so it must know how to actually get to the transit gateway to get back to the source or the origin of that request. Great. I won't walk through the configuration here. These slides are going to be made available for you. Um, so you will be able to see it. Go ahead. You, you, you actually will get these slides by accessing the catalog for this particular um, talk, and the slide and the video will actually be there for you. Uh, so yeah, we'll just move on quickly. Um, now, as I said before, you can centralize your security appliances to interact in an environment like this. And how you do it is pretty simple. So as you did before, right, you'd configure or associate your shared services um, uh, uh, VPC with the transit gateway. You would then configure your security appliance, and you would tell the subnet that the private the private subnets route table that its default route is to the security appliance. The public subnet's route table, its default route um, for your security appliance will be to the internet gateway, but the the route table that your NAT gateway is attached to, its default route will actually be to the security appliance as well. Your gateway route table that your internet gateway is attached to will have a route to the security appliance, as stated here. Your security appliances route table, however, will have your transit gateway routes to send the traffic back to the origin of the request. Great. So we've centralized egress to the internet. We've centralized egress through our security appliance. And now you're actually wondering, how do we actually centralize interface endpoints? That being said, you can only centralize interface endpoints. Gateway endpoints do not allow transitive routing. So if you have IPsec tunnels, you can't route from an premises through that IPsec tunnel and to a VPC gateway endpoint. So how you do this? is by first creating your interface endpoint to a particular service. In this case, let's say we're creating an interface endpoint to SQS. After creating the endpoint, we make note of the regional DNS host name that's generated for you. The second thing you do is to create a private hosted zone and attach that private hosted zone to your shared service's VPC. After doing that, you configure an A record that points to the regional DNS hostname for the interface endpoint as an alias target. Once all of that is done, you then leverage the private hosted zone association capability to associate this private hosted zone with all the VPCs that need it. We do not recommend that you create a resolver um, endpoint for this private hosted zone. We recommend that you use the association features that's available for private hosted zones and associate this private hosted zone across multiple accounts. Now, once these accounts and VPCs actually send a request to SQS, it will come to the central um, shared services VPC, and the VPC will actually return um, the traffic back to the request, the requester. All right. Transit Gateway and Direct Connect Gateway. And I'm going to go through this quickly. So this year, we launched the ability for Transit Gateway to be inter- integrated with your Direct Connect Gateway. And we, we allowed this because we created a new type of virtual interface. Now, the first thing you do in this particular scenario is to associate your direct, direct Connect Gateway with the Transit Gateway. And this association can only be done if, There is no private virtual interface associated with your gateway or a virtual gateway associated with your direct connect gateway. If you've satisfied these two criteria, then you can create an association between transit gateway and direct connect gateway, and then create a transit virtual interface to your your direct connect gateway from your direct connect connection. Now, what what this does for you, this allows you to associate up to three transit gateways that reside in different regions with a single direct connect gateway, giving all of these transit gateways access to a single data data center, regardless of where the VPCs are. A transit gateway can be associated with up to 20 direct connect gateways. So if you have direct connect gateways that provide pops into different regions and different data centers, you can associate your transit gateway with that direct connect gateway, gaining access to all your data centers and backhauling all of that traffic across AWS. Now, you might be wondering, well, I only have one direct connect connection, but I have five transit gateways, right? If the direct connect gateway only allows access to three, how do I overcome that limitation? Well, the first step in that, Um, equation is using AWS um, inter-region transit gateway pairing attachments. The second thing is, using the direct connect gateway, attach the three um, uh, transit gateways that you have there, but then create a pairing connection between one of the transit gateways and the other transit gateway that exists in another region. You can do transitive routing across Transit gateways. So if I have, in this scenario here, my direct connect connection residing in one region and my transit gateway as seen here for uh, Northern Virginia being connected to Ireland, Ireland can gain access to on-premises through Northern Virginia as long as the routes are actually specified in the required route table. I'll say that again. You can do transitive routing across transit gateways that are paired to. Um, uh, uh, a site that exists um, on your Direct Connect Gateway or your IPsec um, configuration. So if, you have, so if this Direct Connect Gateway was, was uh, replaced by a site-to-site VPN, you could actually do that as well. And this is where I conclude. We're about six minutes over time. <laughs> so um, again, these slides are going to be uh, uh, available to you. But in conclusion, you know, we recommend that you, you know, design your VPCs for scale, you even uh, distribute your subnets, you centralize in order to actually simplify, complex, multi-vpcs environments.